Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I love talking with New Deal leader, Connecticut Representative Caroline Simmons, who at 34 was just elected to her fourth term in the State House. In Hartford, Carolyn's been a passionate and effective advocate for small business and entrepreneurs, mothers, children, and more. She and I talked about how it felt watching Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being sworn into office last week, how other historic events like 9-11 and the Sandy Hook tragedy shaped her own journey into public service, and what we can learn about uniting the country from her marriage. Caroline Simmons, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you so much, Debbie. Glad to be with you. First, I just want to congratulate you on being reelected to your fourth two-year term in the Connecticut House of Representatives in November. Really excited to see that for you, and, and congrats. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Debbie. Yeah, so let's start, Caroline. We're talking actually in a really historic week. This week, obviously, President Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in at the inauguration, and we've had a couple of their first days. So I'm just kind of curious, how are you feeling about you know, where we are in the direction of the country here? Yeah, I am so hopeful and uh, inspired by everything that happened this week. The inauguration was so moving, and I thought President Biden's message of unity and healing and, and coming together was exactly what we needed at this this moment in time. And just, my goodness, how historic it was to see the first woman vice president getting sworn in. That moved me to tears, and it was just such a historic moment for our country. And I think we're so lucky to have President Biden and Vice President Harris's leadership, especially at this moment in time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the woman vice president. There was, I I cried a lot (laughs) this week myself. It was really something to see. Of course, I had the thought too, to be honest about, I can't believe it's 2021 and uh, this is the first time, but uh, it it was very exciting to see for sure. Um, Indeed, long overdue. Long overdue. You know, I think your first job out of college, Caroline, was actually working on the Obama transition team. So I'm curious about, you know, what you can tell us from that experience about kind of how things are, you know, get up and running in the early days of a new administration. Yeah. And it was, you know, a really exciting time after the campaign concluded in in 2008, um, getting to work on the the transition team. I worked on the agency review team where we were in charge of, you know, meeting with the previous administration's employees at each agency and getting briefed by them on and up to speed on Homeland Security issues, which is where I ended up having the fortune of getting to work under the Obama Biden administration. And it's a really exciting time. I think, I think, you know, the first hundred days are always, you know, such an important opportunity for for any new president to be able to get their agenda passed. And President Biden and Vice President Harris haven't wasted any time with the 
you know, incredible, uh, robust executive orders they've already signed on the first day. I think this is such an exciting time where they're really able to get initiatives through and, you know, particularly with having control of both, both houses of, you know, Congress and the Senate, it's a, it's a really opportune time to, to get their agenda through. So, so yeah. And I think, unfortunately, this transition was, you know, a really dark, dark moment for our country. And I'm, I'm so happy that democracy prevailed and that, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel now with this new administration in place so they can get to work helping people across our country who are struggling with this economic and health crisis we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of your time at DHS, you've, I think you've had a really interesting journey into public service. And in fact, in getting ready for this, I, I saw that I think you were president of your high school to start. That must have been the first office or one of the first offices you ran for. Is that right? And what did you run on a platform for that uh, for that position or what prompted you to run for uh, for st- in student government? Yes. So, you know, it was actually the, the second office I ran for when I first ran in ninth grade. I lost miserably my, my first selection um, to, to student government. And so I always tell students when I'm talking to them that if they fail the first time, you know, don't give up because sometimes it takes a couple couple runs to to win but what really prompted me was the 9/11 attacks which happened in 10th grade the you know second week of high school sitting in history class and our principal told us that our country was under attack and that two planes had, had struck the world trade center towers and i remember just you know we my high school was 30 minutes from manhattan and you know, we all just watched in horror as you know, three, over 3,000 innocent lives were lost that day. And I think, you know, it really, you know, woke us all up to to the threats that that we face as a country and, and kind of, again, the threats we saw during this transition of how fragile our democracy is. And so I, I knew in that moment that I wanted to, to get involved in public service in, in some way. And so that's what led me to run for, for student government and to really try to get involved in, in our local school community. I remember that you know, just despite all the devastation and and horror of, of 9/11, there it was this this moment of unity for our country, where you know people came together and you know people were lining up to donate blood and lining up to to serve in the military and and going into the city to volunteer at Ground Zero. And I felt like it was this really inspiring moment for our country where we came together after that crisis. And I think that really motivated me to want to serve in some way. I love that. And I, I really love the message about uh, trying again, too. I think that people don't realize how many people who are in elected office, you know, ran at some point uh, and didn't win or, you know, weren't successful and how you just got to pick yourself up and, and dust yourself off and keep going just like so in so many areas of life. Right. <laughs> so I appreciate that message. You went on after after high school to college and you studied government at Harvard. It's interesting to hear your first answer about the about the high school student government, because it, maybe the, there's some threads here, I suspect. But, you know, you studied abroad in Egypt and got your MA in Middle East studies, right? And then ended up at the at the Department of Homeland Security. So what was it uh, that that drove you in that direction uh, to want to work in security and, and national uh, affairs? It was connected to the, the 9-11 attacks and you know, really wanting to get more involved in, in foreign policy and, you know, working with international partners to protect our country from harm so that 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 would never happen again. That was really the motivation. And I you know, initially had this dream of being a CIA agent. It was about the time that those uh, Born Identity movies had come out with uh, with Matt Damon. <laughs> and I, I had this dream that I could you know, become the CIA agent and help uh, 
solve all the problems. I didn't end up making the cut for the CIA, but um, but ended up at, at Homeland Security, which was such a rewarding place to work alongside, you know, all the men and women who are on the front lines protecting our, our air, land, and sea borders from, from a range of threats, you know, everything from cyber threats to terrorist threats to, to natural disasters, you know, we're under the purview of our, our department. And then even international work within our department, we had an office of international affairs. And I uh, worked on the Middle East team where we focused on training our counterparts in the Middle East on things like border security, airport security. And the idea was really pushing out our borders beyond the US and to try to stop threats uh, overseas before they came to, to our country. And you know that was one of the, the failures highlighted in the, in the 9-11 commission report. And so that was something we, we worked hard on. So, so yeah, that's really what kind of led me down that path. That's so interesting. I, I, I'm super fascinated that you were in counterterrorism. And I saw that one of the things that you and you mentioned a little bit is kind of this this rise of violent extremism and working on that issue. I'm curious about, you know, back to kind of what happened in the last few weeks in our own country. What were your thoughts about some of the, you know, domestic terrorism and this rise of white supremacy here at home with uh, with that experience that you've had? Yeah, you know, two things come to mind. I think one is since we, you know, really were successful in defeating and dismantling Al-Qaeda overseas, you know, we really did see a shift to more homegrown terrorism. And that was one thing our department worked on was, you know, better intelligence coordination among federal, state, and local partners and and really, you know, working with community community partners to address homegrown extremism and, and domestic terrorism. And what we saw in the Capitol that day was a was a failure in and all that progress we made on, on intelligence coordination, I think, you know, both from the perspective of the, the threat of that pro-Trump mob being being underestimated, despite the intelligence in, in the preceding days, and then also in terms of the preparedness and response, you know, of, of the Capitol Police, you know, working with local law enforcement partners in, in D.C. and working with the National Guard to, to protect the, the Capitol was was a real failure. And so I think we, we have significant work to do. And I'm so so hopeful with the new administration on board that they will be taking a close look at that to make sure that that won't ever happen again. Yeah, indeed. And um, I do think there's so much, you know, that needs to happen in terms of federal, state and local coordination that may have not been uh, what it should be in the last few years. So I'm, I'm optimistic about about that as well. After the DHS, you, you came home uh, to Stanford and to run for the state legislature. I think in 2014, uh, you ran against an incumbent Republican. I, you know, did you always know that you wanted to, to run for, for elected office uh, after those early stints in high school? Or, um, and how did that kind of seat, uh, you know, what made your decision to come run for that seat? Yeah, so, you know, I always have loved politics. And growing up, my parents, we at the dinner table, we were always, you know, bickering about politics. My dad is a Republican, my mom's a Democrat, and, you know, just grew up kind of hearing their stories about growing up in the 60s and, you know, being part of the the anti-Vietnam War protests and the women's liberation movements and civil rights movement. And it was always, you know, really inspired by by politics and and government as a way to, you know, make a difference and, and help fix challenges uh, that that we face in our country, so so always kind of had that political bug, but I didn't know if I definitely wanted to run for office or, you know, whether just kind of working behind the scenes in government was the better route. But actually, in the the fourth year that I was at Homeland Security, there were tragically a series of mass shootings that happened that year, and they were in Oak Creek, Tucson, 
Aurora. And then the, the fourth one that culminated that year was in Newtown, Connecticut, the, the horrific shooting of, of school children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And I just remember watching from my desk, you know, how horrifying that, that shooting was and just, you know, crying at my desk and, you know, praying that finally meaningful action would be taken at the federal level on, on gun violence prevention and, you know, watched in the weeks, weeks that followed that, you know, Congress was still just, you know, had so much gridlock and, and nothing was, you know, able to be um, achieved at, at the federal level. And I really, you know, saw this kind of shift to, they call state legislatures the laboratories of, of innovation and, and so much good policymaking gets done at the state level um, before it makes its way to the federal level. And so I, I was really impressed kind of watching from afar what my home state in Connecticut passed in, in the wake of that shooting, you know, one of the most comprehensive gun bills passed the legislature in Connecticut and, you know, Newtown was 30 minutes from where I grew up. And so I think it really shook our community and the, the incumbent that I ended up running against in that race was, you know, one of the only Republicans in Fairfield County who voted against that bill. And so that was a big motivating reason for running and just, you know, wanting to be a voice for gun safety and, and reducing gun violence in our community. And, and also just the, the broader goal of, you know, wanting to impact policy and help people at, at the state and local level, where I think you can really make a difference at the grassroots level and in, in helping, helping make people's lives better. Absolutely. I mean, you've given me goosebumps. I, you know, yes, it affected your community. And of course, you know, it affected all of us too. I mean, you know, I was remembering, I'm, my, my youngest son was a kindergartner um, when Sandy Hook happened. And I just remember standing outside being there to pick him up, you know, when I heard about what it had happened and I just, you know, was sobbing and, and to the, to your point, the, um, the inaction that followed was, you know, just horrifying, <laughs> you know, it still is, you know? Um, and so, but I, I, I love, I, I didn't know that actually, that was your, such a motivating factor for you. And I, and I love that it's, it's just, it is so important the the response that can happen at the state and local level often, in, you know, in the face of federal inaction. So thank you for that. You, you mentioned Caroline, your dad and mom being uh, of different political parties. I think your dad served actually in the administration of George W. Bush. One of my favorite things when I was thinking about talking to you was I was excited to get to talk to you about this aspect of your life because not only do you have parents that were different political parties, you're married to a former uh, Republican legislator who I believe you met through your work with the Bipartisan Young Legislators Caucus. I just think that that's so fascinating, particularly now when everyone feels like there are these divides that are almost insurmountable that you have, you know, lived your whole life, you know, loving and working with people across party lines. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about your work with the Bipartisan Legislative Caucus and what the goal was there. And also what lessons you would give people who are, you know, desperate to make connections with people who don't always agree with them. And, you know, in this whole idea that you started our conversation with about kind of unity and, and healing the country. Absolutely. Yes, it was. It's funny. It was actually the last thing I was expecting when I when I got to Hartford was, you know, to meet the, the love of my life. It's not what you, you know, expect to find when you get to state government, but it was such a pleasant surprise. And you're right, we met through, he started this bipartisan Young Legislators Caucus. And I think you had to be under 30 or 35. And so there were only a few of us in it at the time. And he and I kind of just hit it off as, as friends. And then we served on committees together and got to work on bipartisan legislation. And it's funny, we at first when we started dating, we sort of kept it secretive, because 
we were so worried what, what our you know colleagues and, and kind of party leaders were, were going to think because I think you're right. There's just so much divisiveness right now, and you know I think particularly with party politics, you know people kind of put each other in boxes and say, oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you know, you're bad, or you, you represent these things. And I think the reality is, you know, we don't fit into these boxes. I think we, we have so much more in common and we have, you know, over overlapping policies that, that we agree with. And that's one thing my husband and I try to always focus on is, you know, we both love our state and we love our country and we want to fix these challenges. We may, you know, differ on the best way to get there at times, but I think we, we try to always have that respect for, for each other's intentions that we both care about having those, you know, positive outcomes. We don't always do the best job. We certainly have had a uh, heated uh, dinner debates as well, like, like my parents did growing up. But I think, I think it's so important in this day and age too, as you, as you're saying, Debbie, with all the division we're seeing. And I think just the lack of faith in government among our population, it's, you know, at an all time low. I think, you know, Congress, I read recently, it's, you know, only 13% approve of the job Congress is doing. And I think people have really just lost faith in the system. And I think partisan politics and, and the gridlock that we see is a big part of that. And so I think we need to do a much better job of reaching out across the aisle and, and listening to one another and respecting one another and, I always say that instead of attacking each other, we should attack the problems we're facing and and put our energy into coming up with creative uh, bipartisan solutions. Absolutely. Can will you indulge me for a second? I I did not know this story about you until I was getting ready for our conversation today. You have to just briefly tell us about the proposal because it's so <laughs> so cute. <laughs> oh, of course. You um, you you'd make my husband stay if he heard this because he spent so long planning this. But he um he knows I love uh reading the the newspaper every morning, and uh you know one of our our things we used to do when we were dating is like just go to breakfast and read the papers. And he always reads the Wall Street Journal and I always read the New York Times. And we kind of would debate back and forth the issues. And so he decided to propose with a full page advertisement in our, our local newspaper in Stanford, the Stanford Advocate. And uh, it's it's on the back page. And so I usually, usually the weather's on that page. So I always kind of like flip to the back to check the weather that day. And uh, I had to do a double take and just it took, I was kind of in shock when I saw it. I was like, wait, what is this? It said, dear Caroline, will you marry me on the back page? And so it was very sweet and, and, and meaningful. And of course our local paper loved it too, because they're a star, star for revenues. So it was, it was really special. <laughs> I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. That is the cutest thing. <laughs> Good for him. He gets major kudos, major kudos. I want to go back, Caroline, to when you, to when you ran for office that first time, you, you know, you're a millennial, you dated yourself with some of the telling us where you were at certain uh, certain certain historic events throughout this conversation. So I think it, it, certainly at the time you were the youngest woman serving in the state, I, you may still be. I'm kind of interested in, in, in that experience and how being, you know, a young woman in the legislature, you know, how that was, how you were treated, how you felt, you know, how you were felt you were able to, to get things done, just kind of your experience. Yeah. So I think this was definitely, you know, one of the challenges I faced in my campaign running as a, as a young woman, I think I, I faced kind of criticism from, you know, older, older leaders in my community that, you know, you don't have the experience and you need to, you know, put in your time. And I think that's, that's a challenge that, that all young candidates face. And, but one thing I found is that I think it's actually so helpful to have new blood and, and new ideas, you know, brought to our legislatures. They need that infusion of kind of new creative energy because, 
I think by the time you're in there a certain amount of time or, you know, when you, you stay too long, I think you kind of, you kind of lose that and you, you lose that kind of innovation and, and those new bright ideas. So, so that's one thing I've always tried to bring since I've been there. I do feel we're fortunate in Connecticut that we do have, you know, leaders that are really supportive of women and, you know, particularly women with young kids. I found our, our speaker has been really supportive of, you know, times I've had to you know, go pump in my office or I've, I've had to leave early, you know, due to, to childcare reasons. I think, you know, they're really supportive, but we have so much work to do in terms of getting more women in office and in government, you know, only about 30% of our legislature is female right now. And we, we still have very few young moms. And I think because of the, how challenging it can be to, to get up to Hartford and to have to be there, you know, overnight sometimes for bill debates, you know, with, with kids at home, it can be really challenging. So I think we still have a lot of work to do there to make our state government more, more friendly to, to women and, and to working moms. Absolutely. And I think that's true across the country. It has been so heartening to see so many women and other, you know, people of color and just other historically underrepresented groups in government make such strides over the last couple cycles. But I, I agree, we can, just can't do enough to make sure that so many different voices are represented uh, in, in our government. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in uh, the legislature. You, you've really developed a national reputation on, on a bunch of issues. But in particular, I was hoping to talk a little bit about the work you've done on entrepreneurship and small business support. You were co-chair of the Commerce Committee. You held, actually worked in the legislature, but also held positions outside the legislature, like your work with the Women's Business Development Council. You passed uh, an entrepreneur's learning permit bill that, that New Deal has highlighted a number of times to streamline services and provide support for entrepreneurs. I just come, I'm curious, particularly with COVID now, this has become such a major issue of trying to support small businesses and entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about how you got into that work and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, and, and thanks so much for, for your kind kind words before. And I have to thank the New Deal too for for all of your support. And it's it's so great to get to collaborate with with colleagues and counterparts from across the country on, on innovative bill ideas. That's so, so helpful. So thanks for for all of your support and all that the New Deal does. Yeah. So as you said, supporting small businesses and, and jobs is, you know, our top priority right now with all the devastating economic effects of, of this pandemic. You know, so many businesses have had to close their doors at, at no fault of their own uh, during this pandemic. And they've, they've really made enormous sacrifices to protect the health and safety of, of their employees and, and customers and have been forced to shut down. And so from, from March of 2020 to, to now, we've been focused on, you know, helping keep them alive through providing grant and low interest loan programs, you know, working with the SBA and federal partners on, on getting PPP and EIDL loans out to, to small businesses. Um, we, we focused a lot too on women and minority owned businesses who have been hit especially hard by the pandemic. And then also focusing on small businesses within industries that have been hit especially hard, like our, our hospitality industry, our, our tourism industry, our retail industry, and, and our and our restaurants. So so we will continue to be focusing on it this session. And then, you know, prior to COVID, we were we were also working to kind of remove red tape and make it easier to, to start a business in Connecticut. So the entrepreneurial uh, learner's permit bill that you mentioned was one of the ideas we put forward where we said a new business could could start for free and we would reimburse them on all the kind of permitting fees and, and licensing costs associated with starting a business just to you know make it easier to start up. We want to make Connecticut as friendly as possible to new businesses and entrepreneurs. 
because they're the, the job creators. Two thirds of all new jobs are created by small businesses. And so we wanted to make our state a more welcoming, welcoming place, but we still have significant work to do on that front and, and to help these businesses survive this, this difficult winter we have ahead. Absolutely. And I, and I know that, you know, when you were talking about running this last time, obviously you've talked about COVID being the paramount in terms of getting it under control so that you can get things turned back around on your, in your state, like, like is true across the country. I know so many states and localities are struggling to kind of get their vaccine plan up and running and, and stop the spread as well as things like with small business and entrepreneurs and other safety net issues. So how do things look in Connecticut and, and what are you working on? How, how as a legislator are you able to kind of address some of those issues? We just started our session uh, January 6th, and we are right, uh, actually today is our, our build in deadline where we're submitting bills. And I think all of us are kind of looking at it with a COVID lens in terms of how can we support the most vulnerable who are being affected by this pandemic. And so, um, you know, we're really focused on issues like uh, housing, on, on healthcare, and addressing the racial inequities we've seen exacerbated by this pandemic. You know, we're focused on job creation. We had over half a million people in our state uh, filed for unemployment. So how can we get them back into good paying job opportunities? And then we're also focused on education and making sure our students and teachers can safely be in the classroom and that we close the digital divide so that all students have access to remote learning opportunities. So those are kind of some of the top issues that we're focused on. Caroline, just continue a little bit about kind of your legislative priorities. I know the work that you've been doing most recently um, outside the legislature has involved mental health issues, particularly, I think, for new mothers. Uh, Can you just tell us a little bit about that? And is that something you'll be working on in the legislature this session as well? Yes. So my outside job is I work at the Yale uh, School of Medicine at a policy lab called Elevate, which works to advance maternal mental health policies in order to lift families out of poverty. And that's been a really rewarding experience that has really helped inform me on policies we need at the state level to advance maternal mental health. And actually one bill that I introduced um, with a group of my fellow uh, legislators is a bill that extends Medicaid coverage for mothers beyond 60 days postpartum and provides a year of coverage. Because one of the challenges we see is after 60 days postpartum, often mothers lose their Medicaid eligibility. And that's such a critical period, you know, both to supporting a mother's, you know, mental and physical health, but also to making sure that well-child visits are being attended. And so ACOG and a number of kind of national health leaders are, are recommending that Medicaid coverage be extended to one year postpartum. So that's something we are introducing and, and hoping to get traction on and I think that there's there's so much work we, we need to do in terms of supporting maternal health. We know that the U.S. has seen maternal mortality rates uh, rising. We've seen the rates of preterm births increasing. And uh, a lot of these challenges are, are preventable if we can just put in place better um, maternity care policies and, and better support for, for prenatal care for mothers and families. And so that's definitely something I'm going to be continuing to focus on. That's so fantastic. Thanks, Caroline. As we wrap up here, I would love to ask you a question that I've become fond of lately about your any favorite books you have, particularly things that relate to leadership or, or history or kind of the, the times in which we find ourselves. Do you have any uh, good book recommendations for us? 
Yes, actually, you know, one leadership book, which I absolutely love, and I'm just finishing up is called Leadership in Turbulent Times. I don't know if uh, you've read that, but it's it compares kind of Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt and, and LBJ's leadership style by, by Doris uh, Goodwin. And it's just a, a really fascinating read. And, and I think so relevant now to the crisis we're facing because it talks about, you know, how FDR handled the Great Depression and how LBJ handled the civil rights movement and how Lincoln, you know, handled the emancipation population and Theodore Roosevelt handled their labor strikes and how these different leaders use their skill sets to get us through different crises. And I think it's really applicable to, to what we're facing today. So definitely recommend that book. I love it. And I have to tell you that uh, Zach Walls in Iowa, the new uh, Senate minority leader who was the last interview I did, also recommended that book. So I'm going to say that that clearly should be New Deal leader and New Deal friend uh, reading. I'm a huge Doris Kearns Goodwin fan, actually. Um, I think that she's... um, She's a treasure, frankly. So I'm, I'm, I'm seconding your endorsement of that book as well. <laughs> so. <laughs> she, she really is a treasure. And I'm so glad to know that the, that's great. We should definitely endorse that as a new deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to start a new deal book club, actually. I'm, have, I'm getting ideas here. <laughs> I love that I, idea. <laughs> I love it. Well, Caroline, I just can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to us today. I'm, I'm just so grateful to all of you who choose to serve in public life right now, uh, particularly in these tough times, you know, whether it's the pandemic and the recession and our, you know, racial equality, as well as just the, the, the need to, to unify and heal this country. So thank you for all you do. We're grateful for it. And I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Debbie. It was great to connect with you. And thanks for all that you and the New Deal do as well. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.